Welcome to the Lemper Report Live. On today's broadcast, we look at the latest school lunch scam, the New York City delivery wars, yet another reason to follow the Mediterranean diet, why you should have a food forest in your city, food styling seems to make all the difference, and on bullseye, we just might have found the reason for Coca-Cola's price increases. Let's get started. So, Sally, what we have is we have a new school lunch program that they're actually going to be serving kids two versions of new improved nutrition lunchables. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I have mixed feelings about it, um, Phil. You know, the lunchables are really popular with kids. I have kids and my kids want to, want to eat them. Um so I can see this being, you know, being something that the kids are really happy about. Um, also, we know that there is a lot of waste going on in schools. You know, we hear reports about big numbers of, of food being wasted. And so, you know, maybe this is a way to keep um, food from being wasted. And also there are staffing shortages in um, school as well. And so this cuts down on being able to, um, on having to prep a lot um, for lunches for kids. Um, however, the issue for me, Phil, is, is, um, is the nutritional content of these. Now I will give, uh, give them this. They have, um, they have raised the amount of whole grains um, in one of these, they're going to be serving the turkey and cheddar cheese slice lunchables and then the, the pizza lunchable. And they have increased the whole grains to two ounces, um, which is great. But the problem is, is that the sodium content is still at 930 milligrams. So I am concerned about that. Yeah, I agree with you um, totally. So when we look at the turkey and cheddar cheese stackers um, and we don't have this product. We don't we don't know what the nutritional information is on the product. Uh, but as as it says, it contains 930 milligrams of sodium. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, that's more than the regular turkey and cheddar lunchables are. We'll get to that in a minute. But the basic meal requirements for the school lunch program is fruits, Vegetables, including grades K through 12 weekly requirement for vegetable variety with minimum requirements for each of the five vegetable subgroups, including dark green, red, orange, beans and peas, starchy and other vegetables, grains, meat and meat alternatives and fluid milk. And just to give you some idea on a, and I'm just going to take grades six through eight, mm -hmm. because there's different levels, grades K through five, grades nine through 12, but I'm going to focus on grades six through eight. The amount of food per week that they're supposed to get is two and a half uh, cups of fruits, uh, three and three quarters cups of vegetables, um, grains, eight to 10 ounces, uh, meats and meat alternative, nine to 10, uh, fluid milk, five, and um, sodium, um, less than 1,360 uh, per day. That's not per week. And if we take a look at the Lunchables, the back of the turkey and cheddar um, stackers, the nutritional information um, on this product, it's, um, and now again, this is not the new one, for schools. This is the one that you just buy at, you know, any supermarket. 
14 grams of fat, seven grams of saturated fat, 740 of sodium. And again, that's less than what mm -hmm. they're saying is in the new improved one. So I don't understand where new and improved is. Three grams of added sugars, 13 grams of protein. And if you take a look at the ingredients, what's really interesting, roast white turkey, cured, smoke flavor added. I'm not going to read all the ingredients there, but you can read them yourself. Uh, then cheddar pasteurized prepared cheese product. This is not cheddar cheese. It's not even American cheese. It's cheddar pasteurized prepared cheese product. And then crackers. Um, I'm assuming that the new one, the, they've upped it to whole wheat instead of just the enriched flour. Um, and that's it. So I am equally as concerned about nutrition and also from a societal standpoint what are we doing when we have kids uh for lunch you know building little crackers and little pizza things and stuff like that versus having like a real meal are we training these kids just to be snacking versus eating foods Yes, um, that is a very good point, Phil. And I also wonder, you know, if there are two options to these Lunchables, you know, there's five days a week at school. So, you know, what are we going to be? Are we going to be serving these same items? And what about the kids that don't eat meat? Um, and those deli meats, you know, we've seen a lot of studies over the years linking uh, over-processed meats to certain types of cancer. So, you know, I mean, you know, we, we eat deli meats here sometimes at our house, but it's not something that we want our kids eating every single day. Yeah. And um, to your earlier point, according to the School Nutrition Association, 93% of school nutrition programs report challenges with staff shortages. Mm -hmm. So clearly um, we've got two issues. One is there's no workers. Um, and in fact, when we used to work um, with Michelle Obama, on the uh, chef's move to school program, what we found is most schools didn't even have kitchens. Um, they, they couldn't prepare hot foods and so on. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very big issue, but, um, oh, the last issue about labor. Um, so the median weekly aid, uh, weekly wage from 2014 to 2019 for the people who work in K through 12 cafeteria workers, $331 a week uh, versus the median weekly wage for the average U.S. worker is $790 per week. So clearly one of the reasons that we don't have enough cafeteria workers is they're not being paid very well to be there. So they've got to, in order to sustain themselves and their families, they've got to find other jobs um, as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we have a real big issue as it relates to labor, and that leads us to the New York City delivery wars. Um, what we saw is last November, um, uh, two years ago, November, sorry, um, they all the delivery workers in New York got together. They were looking for higher wages. Um, there's 65,000 delivery people um, in New York, and, and that includes, you know, the five boroughs of New York. And they were talking about getting $24 an hour. Currently, according to the city of New York, including tips, they make about $11 an hour. Um, so this would, you know, more than double that. Uh, but 
it looks like there's a war going on now with the workers um, within the workforce. So tell us what's going on there. Yes, um, it, it's it's a it's a little bit complicated, Phil. Um, there there's an organization called Los Deliveristas Unidos, which has been which has been fighting for these um, wage increases and worker conditions um, for a while now, and they are also under what's called the Workers Justice Project. So we've got these great organizations that want um, fair working conditions and better pay for New York City uh, delivery drivers. However, there apparently is a segment of these drivers that um, are pushing back against the request for these wage increases. The reason being is they are afraid that they're going to be what's called gated. This is one of the reasons. And what, what gating is, is when there's not enough demand on the food delivery app um, for all the workers that are trying to get on, then some workers will just get locked out of the app and not be able to work at that time. So they're they're really concerned about this. Um, they're they're con they're concerned about also the price going up for customers. So that will affect their tips and their ability to work. Um, they are also um, concerned, you know, just about, about having to um, compete with other workers and also not being able to have the, the freedom to turn down a delivery. So in other words, what comes with these higher wage conditions is that they also have to commit to accepting all deliveries that come through on their apps. So these are legitimate concerns. However, the other side, um, says that these are not these are not true concerns. These are not factual concerns. That these are the ideas that are being marketed to them by the delivery companies that are anti-union. Yeah, and when we take a look at delivery, certainly if the price does go up uh, or their wages goes up to whether it's nineteen dollars is what they're talking about now or twenty four dollars, that will have an effect. Mm -hmm. um, on the on the price of food and food inflation has taken the prices up already. Um, so I'm just wondering if, in fact, regardless of whether it's $19 an hour or $24 an hour, what happens is delivery um, ends, um, you know, the, this push for delivery. Now, there's always been bicycle delivery in New York City. Um, also, you know, on every street corner, there is a deli or there's a green grocer or a supermarket or something. So I'm just wondering if, in fact, the backlash to the this is people are going to walk a block and pick it up themselves instead of dealing with this whole delivery. The other part of this problem is uh, what, what they had planned to do is take some rest areas on the Upper West Side of New York and, and elsewhere, uh, basically newsstands that have been abandoned since the pandemic, turn those into recharge stations for, for the um, e-bikes, turn them into rest areas uh, for it. And also, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest complaints that these people have is a lot of the restaurants won't let them use their restrooms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're working out of a restaurant, but they don't want you to go into their restrooms. So they're fighting that as well. So right. we're going to watch the story. But mm -hmm. I think delivery in New York is going to change dramatically. Um, a new study uh, that was just published in Advances in Nutrition um, explored biodiversity and analyzed food plant diversity. 
between the Western diet and the Mediterranean diet. No surprise, the Mediterranean diet, which is primarily plant-based and has a lower uh, lower quantity of, of animal products in it, uh, found that they have a lower environmental impact and, you know, biodiversity conservation. So yet there's another reason that we should be looking at the Mediterranean diet, not only for our health, but in order to save the planet. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Mediterranean diet has always been the winner when it comes to our health. And now it seems that it is as far as our planet's health as well. Um, In this study, Italy was observed as having um, the most deserved cuisine, um, which I loved reading that, particularly since we were talking about Italy last week and about how they do not want lab grown meat coming into their country that they um, they think that that, you know, um, it uh, sacrifices the integrity of their traditional their traditional food. So um, that was an interesting one to read. Um, but yes, the idea here is that, you know, being a biodiverse diet, that it is better for the environment. Um, the study talks about how in these countries where they have these biodiverse diets that they find, um, now I'm not a farmer, so I'm going to try and say it in, in the best way I can, but they are better at crop utilization and better at um, taking that crop residue. That is what is left in the fields after crops have been harvested, letting what is left in the fields go back into the soil to keep the soil healthy. And that's a big part of um, of healthy agriculture and farming practices from what we're hearing. And as we're talking about healthy soil, um, one of the biggest trends right now are food forests mm-hmm. uh, taking place. Um, this comes uh, from the New Hampshire Bulletin um, that have studied food forests. Basically, these are edible parks, um, usually on vacant lots where they have large and small fruit trees. They've got vines, different plants that produce fruits, nuts, other edible products. And what I really love about this, and, and you know, there's a bunch of them around. Um, we've got it in in Boston. We have it in um, Seattle. We have it in uh, Atlanta. Um, so a lot of these are, are coming up. In fact, they're saying that right now there's about 85 of these community food forests uh, from the Pacific Northwest to the Deep South. Uh, but what I love about this is it's really helping the people not only get food. Um, it's helping the earth because they're taking vacant lots and they're, and they're having all these biodiverse crops on them, but also it's building society, you know, and, and it's a throwback to when, you know, a lot of us were growing up and, you know, your neighbor had, our neighbor had raspberries. Um, my parents had blueberries. And when they came in season, you traded. And, you know, it, it was much more of a community Affair, and I think in today's world, with all the stress that we're having, with with all the issues that we have, you know, having a food forest in in my city, I would love that. Yes, I I 
I am hoping that we get one one day here in Nashville. I love this. There's one that's that's amazing in Atlanta and there's one in Seattle um, and Boston has 30 planned. They've already built nine. Um, so they're well on their way. Um, yes, these these not only uh, beautify our cities, but they are open to um, to people to come and go from uh, sun up to sundown. These are different from community gardens because community gardens generally require a membership of some sort, but this is open. And, and they're also, you know, allowing the residents to volunteer and get involved and decide what is planted and, and take part in taking care of it. Another interesting thing about Boston and their plans to build 30 of these is that they did a study and found out that because of past redlining in communities of lower income and communities of color, they found that um, it was actually hotter in these areas of the city um, that, you know, these, these forests, these food forests could provide shade and could cool off those areas um, better for those communities. So there are, there are so many benefits to this. There are, and it just makes um, our population and our world a better place. Um, talking about a better place, um, a new study um, was just written up in the Washington Post by Aaron Blakemore. Um, I love this story. It's how to make healthy foods Instagram ready. Um, there's a study in the journal Health Communication that basically found that the most successful food photography are the ones that are the worst for us. So what's that all about? Yes, you know, our brains naturally <laughs> immediately love those photos of those foods that are not good for us. But what this study is telling us is it's giving us some tips on how to make our healthier foods more appealing uh, to people when they're looking at them on Instagram. And some of the suggestions were, you know, that a warm colors were more inviting instead of very um, bright pictures. Um, and, you know, simplicity is better, um, less complexity and um, repetition within the images. So I, I think the basic idea is that, you know, if you're going to be putting healthy pick pictures of healthy food up. Um, let's keep it simple and make those colors really nice and warm and inviting. Yeah. And it's something that, for example, retail dietitians and culinary uh, people that work in supermarkets should really pay attention to because so many of them are now posting, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook, or they're doing videos. Um, so it's a great read, uh, Washington Post, um, how to make healthier foods Instagram ready. Um, so it's a must read for everybody in the food industry. Thanks, Sally. Is RGM just about price? Let's hear from the Vice President of Revenue Growth Management at BIC on how their team approaches working with sales and other teams to optimize all four Ps. Members of the CMA can access the full replay of the webinar in the resource library. Non-members can visit catman.global to contact the association about membership. And here's what they had to say. I have senior leaders on my team that are aligned to our key markets around the world because I have a belief from my prior roles that you can't really do RGM unless you know what's happening in the, in the market. So yeah. the road shows were based on educating the organization. So we, yes, we, we went through the five pillars, but 
typically when we did a, did a roadshow, we got into the marketplace and we went into the stores and saw what was happening on shelf. We did that listening exercise. So then when we walked through the pillars, we could say, in portfolio, you have some white space here where you may want to introduce something that's already in our portfolio that you don't have in your market or in product assortment and mix. These SKUs aren't really working for you. And we have a few really easy to use, easy to use tools that you can either choose to rationalize that SKU or make it work harder for you by investing behind it or trying to get more distribution. What does execution look like that? Um, I talked a little bit about pricing strategy. And when I joined BIC, RGM was price. Um, and more and more than anything, it was taking price. And really and truly, when you get into the market and you look at the shelf and you understand what a shopper is is interacting with at the shelf, when they're making that decision, it's not always about taking price. It might be about reducing price in order to make sure you're at the right price point. And Eversight has been a really great tool for to help us understand that. On today's bullseye, Coca-Cola, you know, the brand that in 2020 was selling a 12-pack of Coke for $4.79 at Target and now sells a 12-pack of cans of Coke for $8.99 at my local Rouse, has announced that their prices are still on the rise. We might finally have one of those reasons. More on that coming up. In February of this year, Coke announced it would raise soda prices again in 2023 to combat stubbornly high costs. It also forecast annual profit growth above Wall Street expectations, and its CEO, James Quincy, said they would continue raising process, uh, prices across the world as a moderating pace. In 2022, Coke's average selling price rose approximately 11%. Now, to be fair, no one seems to know exactly what it costs to make a 12-ounce can of Coke, and I certainly don't. But according to an article published by ICSID, a business and design blog in April 2022, the total cost to produce a can of Coke is about 26 cents, which includes the cost of raw materials, packaging, and shipping, but not advertising. Coca-Cola spends an average of $4 billion a year on advertising worldwide worldwide, according to Statista. I share all this to emphasize that Coke is a very profitable $43 billion company that's projecting a 4 to 5% higher profit in 2023 than it did in 2022. Its gross margin, as reported by Barron's, is 57.91%. So how to spend all that money instead of keeping or lowering prices to help their consumers? Well, last week, the company announced a new global ad campaign called A Recipe for Magic. Sorry, polar bears. I guess you're going to be pushed to the side by the likes of supermodel Gigi Hadid, Chinese actor and foodie Yang Yang, Mexican food influencer Oscar Misa, and other food influencers. The campaign will, according to a press release from Coke, be in the U.S., Canada, Latin America, Europe, Japan, and other key markets. In a 2021 study, Coke times meals times inclusivity in May 2022, Coke says that one in two global shoppers surveyed agree that Coca-Cola helps make gatherings more enjoyable. And approximately 86% of the brand's global shoppers surveyed agreed that Coca-Cola makes any meal better. By the way, 
TCCC Human Insights stands for the Coca-Cola Company Human Insights. They're the ones who did the survey. A recipe for magic, according to the company, is the moment of connection, the meal and an ice cold Coca-Cola, and celebrates that human bond formed by family members, friends, and even strangers while breaking bread. How about making a connection with shoppers at the checkout and not raise prices again? The Lemper Report is all about inspiring ideas, making our industry think and challenging each other. Let's think about being the shopper and how we can bring our supermarkets and restaurants closer to meet their needs. I hope you'll come back to join us on next week's installment of the Lemper Report Live when we focus on the biggest and best insights and the things that really matter. Be sure to visit supermarketguru.com for the latest marketing analysis, issues, and trends. And don't forget to join us right back here next Monday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern for more.